From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. My family had the most effect on my becoming a journalist. I came from a family of serious-minded scholars. I have five brothers and sisters, all of whom are holders of advanced degrees in one field or another. One of my brothers is a holder of two earned PhD degrees. So as you can see, ours is a family heavily oriented toward education and service. I grew up wanting most of all to write and spent most of my childhood experimenting with writing and concluded that it was the world for me. I saw so much that I thought needed to be described, communicated, explored, explained, and so forth. So that just became my outlet. The late Robert C. Maynard, journalist, newspaper publisher, editor, and former owner of the Oakland Tribune newspaper. Maynard was a charismatic leader who changed the face of American journalism and built a four-decade career on the cornerstone of editorial integrity, community involvement, improved education, and the importance of the family. He was also co-founder of the Institute for Journalism Education, a nonprofit corporation dedicated to expanding opportunities for minority journalists at the nation's newspapers. In the 1980s, Maynard began a twice-weekly syndicated newspaper column in which he transformed national and international issues into dinner table discussions of right and wrong. When he bought the Oakland Tribune in 1983, he became the first African-American in this country to own a major daily newspaper. But Maynard had a career full of firsts, from being the first African-American national newspaper correspondent to being the first African-American newspaper editor-in-chief. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, the life and legacy of Robert C. Maynard in Black America. Before I go on to say how that particular movement affected me personally, I want to say something about our profession that I think is an indictment of sorts. You know, we still have a ways to go toward full equality for blacks in America. But I think it's unfortunate that our media has not made it clear to the American people that what happened between 1950 and 1980, let's say, in America, 30 years, is probably one of the most phenomenal revolutions that's occurred in human history. To take the condition that blacks were in in those days and to see the number of barriers that fell and the number of conditions that changed and the number of opportunities that present themselves today versus in that day. And it's a remarkable march. And black Americans should take greater pride in what we have already accomplished. That does not mean we should slacken in what we feel we need to continue to accomplish. But we should not allow ourselves, or deny ourselves, I should say, we shouldn't deny ourselves a justly deserved compliment. The late Robert C. Maynard was a dynamic leader in American journalism throughout the 1970s and 1980s. He was the first African-American to own a major metropolitan daily newspaper. Maynard was the publisher of a struggling Oakland Tribune from 1983 until 1992. Through that newspaper and the Institute for Journalism Education, which he co-founded in 1976, he became instrumental in training and placing minority journalists in important positions nationwide. Born on June 17, 1937 in Brooklyn, New York, Maynard was the son of immigrants from Barbados. 
interested in writing at an early age, he frequently cut class at Boys High School to hang out at the editorial office of a black weekly newspaper, The New York Age. In 1967, Manning was hired by the Washington Post as national correspondent, the first African-American to hold that position on any major newspaper. In 1977, he left the Washington Post and moved to the University of California, Berkeley, to found the Institute for Journalism Education. In 1979, he was hired by Gannett as editor in the newly acquired Oakland Tribune newspaper. When he purchased the Oakland Tribune in 1983, he became the first African-American in this country to own a major daily newspaper. In 1985, Manning was the recipient of the Wick Carter Reddick Award from the College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. Langston had just put on a play called uh, Simple Sings the Blues. And um, Jimmy Baldwin was just about to publish Notes of a Native Son. This was a period in Afro-American history that I was privileged to be the witness to, which was the moral preparation for the civil rights movement. That's what was going on in the middle to late 50s when I was traveling among this group of writers. They were raising the moral questions that would set the stage for Martin Luther King, for Malcolm X, and for the whole struggle that then ensued. The history of the movement up to that time is important to keep in context. Let me just go back a hundred years. To the, at the end of the Civil War, there was an attempt to bring blacks into some sort of um, economic participation and political participation in the South through Reconstruction, as it was called. Reconstruction collapsed in about the 1880s, and little by little, black people slipped into a status of semi-servitude. Yes, no longer slaves, but no, not quite free. And in that context came along a Supreme Court ruling called Plessy versus Ferguson, which decreed that as long as the state provided equal facilities for blacks, they could be separate. And that doctrine, separate but equal, is what prevailed from 1896 to 1954. Now, separate but equal was just a code word for segregation of the rankest sort. There was nothing the least but equal about the treatment of blacks and whites in the South at that time. During World War II, black Americans went off, as you know, and distinguished themselves in war and died fighting for the freedom of this country. It was the people who came home in 1945, having fought and bled and seen their buddies die for democracy and freedom elsewhere, who began to plot the course for the overthrow of Plessy. They were lawyers primarily, people who went to law school and set up shop at Howard University and used that as the... um, the launching pad for this assault on the second-class status of blacks in America. And as that battle began to heat up in the middle 50s, young writers and established writers began to try to define the black experience for public understanding so that white people could understand better. This was the period when Jimmy Baldwin wrote so eloquently about the status of blacks in 
in the minds of whites. He said, you know, a nigger is not a person. A nigger is an idea. Why do you need a nigger? You know, what is it in your life that makes you need to see somebody else as being inferior? And he kept probing that question. And, of course, you know, Langston was, was going at it from another side with the stiletto of satire. Uh, and so, and other writers were, were grappling with it in different ways. And, of course, the writers and the, the clergy and the activists of various kinds all finally began to sing off of one song sheet, as it were, into the middle of the 1950s. And so the Supreme Court, clearly hearing that the moral outcry had reached a level where this could no longer be tolerated, finally declared segregation legally void and replaced the evil doctrine of Plessy against Ferguson with the new doctrine of Brown against Board of Education. And from that moment, there grew the movement that eventually led to Dr. King and others marching on Selma and from Selma to Montgomery. And that ended, finally, the period of legalized separation of the races in this country. What it did not do is liberate our minds. It liberated our bodies. We became, at least physically, able to move about freely in American society. But the presupposition remained that we were intellectually still suffering from the legacy of slavery. We were still, our minds were still enslaved. And so the struggle since the mid-60s has been more of an intellectual struggle. It has been a struggle to establish our right to be viewed as equal in jobs that had previously been, re been regarded as strictly, quote, white jobs. Newspaper editors, judges, physicians, you know, the whole range of places that we had been denied access in large numbers. Well, as we begin to fan out, as it were, from that from the enclosure of segregation into the broad society, we discover that we're not all exactly the same in the way we view the world, that um, to be successful in the world, we have to learn a variety of skills because there are all sorts of new challenges now that we should be working toward. And so I see my becoming an editor and owner of a major daily newspaper as being on the cutting edge of the opening up of this new arena of possibilities for the mind, which I think is every bit as important as what the previous era did to free our bodies. You went to work for the Afro-American in Baltimore and I assume that established you at a major American newspaper. Were you comfortable in coming to the Post after working at the Afro-American in Baltimore? Well, I didn't go straight from the Post. Okay. I went first to a newspaper in Pennsylvania, okay, the daily York newspaper, Gazette. the New York Gazette. Okay. And I worked there for six years. Then I was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. Then, um, as you say, I met Ben Bradley while I was at Harvard as a Neiman Fellow. And he invited me to come and see him at the Post, and I did. And I had no discomfort, no, about coming there. I felt very good about it. 
it was a fabulous experience for me. You said you learned a particular lesson, and I guess the illustration that they used in one of the particular articles, I think it was in Players Magazine, that you had written a person that had red paint thrown on his automobile, mm -hmm. and you somewhat was going to make a satire out of that experience, mm -hmm. and the editor came to you and what well, didn't come to you, he had whacked your particular story, mm -hmm. and you came to him and asked him why did he yeah. do this particular. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could you expound on that more as far as making an impression on you as a journalist? And well, let me start, yeah, sure. Let me tell the whole story so that everybody will know what we're talking about. In my first day as a police reporter on the York Gazette, I went out to cover, uh, to do what they call collecting the police blotter, where you go down to the police headquarters and you take down all these various complaints and so forth, and you write one-paragraph stories about fender benders and so on. It's part of your early training. And I saw one complaint that said, John Smith had uh, complained to the police that he brought that he had just that Saturday afternoon bought a brand new blue Pontiac convertible and he parked it outside of his house overnight and when he came out in the morning somebody had smeared red paint all over this brand new car so he complained to the police I wrote down the complaint and I came back to the office and I decided to write a funny story and as I recall it, my story began, if John Smith had wanted a red convertible, he would have bought a red convertible. Instead, he bought a blue convertible. But last night, somebody tried to paint it red, da 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 and went on to tell his story. Well, after I turned my story in, I went back over to the city editor's desk, and I looked over his shoulder, and he was crossing out all that stuff about if John Smith had wanted a red convertible. And so I said, why did you take all that out? He said, well, let me ask you a question. Why did you put it in? I said, well, I thought it was funny. He said, well, if, you're, if you had been John Smith, would you still think it was funny? And I stopped and I thought about it and I said, well, no. And he said, well, that's my point. He said, when we sit down here to write stories, we must never allow ourselves to indulge in our exercise of humor at the expense of some ordinary citizen. And to me, it was the most profound single lesson about the impact of what we do. It was, it was a lesson that, as you can tell, has remained with me for over 25 years. And whenever I think about what we do as journalists, I always want to ask the question, what's the impact on the other fellow or the other or woman, as the case may be? What are we doing to people? And shouldn't we be sensitive about that? Rather than just say, well, I think it's funny to ridicule this person. Let's have some fun. Well, maybe that's not always appropriate. Was it easy for you or difficult for you to be objective when you covered the civil rights movement and Dr. Sure. Martin Luther King? Oh, sure it was. It was, and um, I tried very hard to avoid becoming a press agent for the movement. Okay. I had to cover the news. I had to write balanced stories that took into account that not everybody in the movement was perfect and that not everything, even everything that Martin Luther King did, was perfect, that nobody's perfect. 
And even though I had enormous sympathy for what the movement was trying to accomplish, I tried to distinguish the goals of the movement from the everyday behavior of individuals and see that for whatever it was so that I was, I, I never allowed in my mind any source, including Martin Luther King, to be larger than life. What effect covering that movement have on your life personally today? Enormous, in the sense that if you could have seen the condition of the political, economic, and social status of black Americans in the South particularly in 1950, which is around the time I began to be aware of things outside myself, you wouldn't recognize that condition versus the condition of blacks today. And before I go on to say how that particular movement affected me personally, I want to say something about our profession that I think is an indictment of sorts. You know, we still have a ways to go toward full equality for blacks in America. But I think it's unfortunate that our media has not made it clear to the American people that what happened between 1950 and 1980, let's say, in America, 30 years, is probably one of the most phenomenal revolutions that's occurred in human history. To take the condition that blacks were in in those days and to see the number of barriers that fell and the number of conditions that changed and the number of opportunities that present themselves today versus in that day. And it's a remarkable march. And black Americans should take greater pride in what we have already accomplished. That does not mean we should slacken in what we feel we need to continue to accomplish, but we should not allow ourselves or deny ourselves, I should say, we shouldn't deny ourselves a justly deserved compliment for what we as a people have done to change our own status in a relatively short period of time. Even though we know we have a long way to go, part of the way you get there is through recognizing what you've already accomplished because hope is key to all accomplishments. And we have accomplished more than we generally recognize, more than the news media stop and acknowledge from time to time, as I feel we in the news media should. What I saw as a journalist is this. I saw a people in a condition of almost total social and political paralysis. And I saw black people galvanize their energies and their forces and focus on specific targets and obliterate those targets and change a condition. In 1961, when the sit-ins began at Greensboro and at, um, in Nashville, there were probably 
a dozen black elected officials in the, the 11 states of the old Confederacy. And today there are over 4,000 black elected officials. That's revolutionary. All of a sudden, all of these popularly elected officials are seeing their names in print associated with all sorts of misdeeds, some of them fanciful, some of them for real. And lo and behold, their accusers were all anonymous. And it left a very bad taste in the public's mouth. The latest surveys show that more than half the public, 54%, will discount a story that contains anonymous sources as unreliable. They just won't touch it. Will you as an editor accept a piece with unnamed sources in it? Not unless it meets a set of fairly clear standards. First of all, there must be an allegation of a violation of public trust. In other words, it's got to be serious. Number two, it must be information that could not be obtained on the record with people's names attached. Number three, some senior editor of the newspaper must know the name of the alleged source. And four, there can't be just one source. There have to be two independent corroborative sources. Under those four standards, yes. You spoke earlier today about credibility within the journalism profession. Two particular incidents have particularly affected the credibility of black journalists. The Janet Cook incident and recently the Jaime incident with Milton Coleman of the Washington Post and the presidential candidate Jesse Jackson. In your opinion, has that drastically hurt black journalists overall, those two incidents? No, not drastically. The Janet Cook case looked as if people could say, well, gee, there's something unique about it, but there wasn't anything unique about it. Um, in very short order, we had the case of Michael Daly of the New York Daily News going off to Belfast and writing a story that he saw a group of British troops do something that didn't happen. And then we had uh, Christopher Jones write an article for the New York Times Magazine about Campuchia. And it turned out that he was in Madrid all the time that he said he was in Cambodia. Then you had uh, the case of the AP reporter writing this strange freeway phantom story. So there have been a number of other fabrications so no, I wouldn't say that there's anything about that that speaks specifically to black journalists. In the case of the so-called Town incident, I think there's something to be said about that that I have not seen or heard a great deal, and so let me tell you what I think. And I haven't said this Because I want to say, is, is this a unique incident where you're privy to information off the record? Well, that's what I want to talk about. Okay. What I want to say about that incident is this. What it reflected was the inexperience of both men at what they were doing. Okay? Jesse Jackson is inexperienced in elective politics. 
He has been accustomed to being in an arena in which he could function without the usual checks and balances that go into political reporting. It's just a different world. And he didn't know that. And so he thought he could do some things that he did in another arena, in another setting, and get away with it in this much different setting. So it was a case of a learning experience for him about how you open your mouth around journalists when you're a candidate. Now, having said that, I have to say on the other side that Milton was equally inexperienced in such matters. And what Milton didn't understand is that in every political campaign, there are always certain areas of understanding between reporters and candidates about the sorts of things that will be allowed to be off the record. Now, in the case of such obnoxious language as Heimitan, I don't think there ought ever to be a rule for that sort of thing to be permissible for candidates to use that kind of language. Because if it's okay for Jesse to say, Heimitan, uh, what do you do if you're equally beholden to a white candidate and they say uh, a racist or a sexist remark? Should a white journalist not report that? He's a putty now. He feels as if he's got a certain camaraderie with the candidate and vice versa, just as Jesse felt he had with the black reporters. Suppose such a white candidate starts using racial epithets in those private circumstances or anti-Semitic epithets. Should that be okay? Should the press, should the reporters close to him say, oh, well, it's off. all of his racial epithets are off the record? That doesn't work either, does it? No. Okay, so... What Milton needed to know is, well, how do you handle that? And the way I think he should have handled it is when he heard Jackson use that sort of language the first time in the so-called off-the-record setting, whatever that might have been, he should have said to him, hey, look, I find that offensive. I think that that even speaks to the character of this campaign. And I don't think, since this is off-the-record, I don't think I will report it the very first time, but I want you to know that if I determine that that's a pattern with you, that you do use that sort of language all the time, it may become part of your profile as I have to report it. And I think that would have cleaned it up, but he didn't have the experience to know that that's what you do. We call it in political reporting one bite of the apple. Every guy, every candidate, every person, man or woman, should have one chance in the early stages of a campaign to make a mistake, because we all do, without us blowing it up. But if we find that that mistake, so-called, at first, begins to reveal itself as a pattern that tells us something about the character of the person, then we should put them on notice that we intend to use that material in a story. The late Robert C. Maynard former editor and publisher of the Oakland Tribune newspaper. Maynard died on August 17, 1993. He was 56. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. 
Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.